Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by a repeat guest, Ari Witten, who has written a new book called Eat for Energy. He has a very popular podcast called The Energy Blueprint. And he has not been removed from YouTube, which is kind of surprising because he talks a lot about the same things that we do. He's, he is, uh, has a position that I'm in alignment with almost everything he teaches. So there, in my experience, it's pretty rare to find someone that holds those positions. Uh, I have a few, few minor disagreements in, in his re- most recent book, but when I discussed it with him, we're, we're, at, we're, in, we're in alignment. So it's all, all good. But the book, Ari likes to, fo- his, his big clinical condition is fatigue, energy. And uh, if you've been following my work for a while, you're going to know that the foundational core of addressing that is the mitochondria. So he dives deep into it. So I just love it, you know, and it's, and he's also really uh, done some of the best work on compiling the information on infrared as a healing modality is something called photobiomodulation. He wrote the, wrote the definitive book on this and is, is known throughout the industry as the person who started this space. So, uh, and then personally, um, he helped revise my understanding of sauna in a real important way. Uh, I remember meeting him at Mindshare in, was it San Diego? Was it or Arizona? Arizona. I think it was no, Arizona. it was San Diego. Oh, San Diego. Okay. So, um, yeah, and he just kind of shared some insights with me and he got my mind to thinking. And then as a result of that discussion, I, I radically revised the design of the sauna space sauna. And now it exceeds, and we'll talk about it, but I believe it's like the best sauna in the world because not only does it give you photobiomodulation, but it's, it gets up to whatever temperature you need. In a, in a profoundly effective way. So uh, we're going to start and dive in because there's a lot to talk about. So welcome with all that information as a preface and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to connect with you, my friend. All right. So uh, I guess we could start with the motivation to write this book because you've already written the previous book. And what was the name of that previous book? The first book you wrote? It was in infrared? Uh, the, fir- the first book I wrote was actually 2014. It was called Forever Fat Loss. I was okay. So this is the, the second. I'm thinking of the the the, the, the uh, red light. Yeah, yeah the, red the, light. Ulti- the ultimate guide to red light therapy. And yeah, I think that, that, 2019. Yeah, I think I interviewed for that one. It was a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't have it already, and just as an aside, everyone watching this, uh, obviously YouTube took down my channel. <laughs> for <laughs> I was YouTube like when at the beginning, literally within the first year. So I had a lot of videos up there, but we're in the process of doing is, is re-uploading them all to BitChute. So if you want to find someone interviewed in the past, like Ari, just go to bitshoot.com, type in my name and Ari's name, and it should come up. If it doesn't come up now, it should come up really shortly. It's going to, probably going to take us about four or five months to do that. So, because it's a process. <laughs> it's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews. So, yeah. All right. So I can um, imagine I've been, I've been following your work since I was a kid, since I was 17 years old, 20 years oh, ago. So really? I can imagine you've produced a lot of content in that time. 
Yeah, it just boggles my mind, you know, and it's just looking at these old interviews, just, oh my gosh, but it's fun, it's a journey, you know, and, and that's what I, that's what I'm impressed with your approach, because you're like, everyone should be a perpetual student, and you've got that marked in spades, you're always learning, pushing the boundary, and you're questioning things, and if it's not right, I mean, you even question me, while you looked at it as one of your, your mentors, and, yeah. and it, it was appropriate, and, and I shifted, because you had some really solid information. Uh, so that's what you got to do. You have to have the confidence and to put in the time and effort. So what motivated you to write this book, Eat for Energy? It's a, it's a big shift from the red. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Day, but... Yeah, well, you know, it, it was interesting writing uh, a, a diet book. Well, you know, I'll be honest for a second. Hay House and my book agent really wanted me to publish the energy blueprint. They wanted me to publish everything, everything oh, related really? to to every aspect of nutrition and lifestyle. And I said, you know, th this is going to, this is going to be a 500 page, page book. Oh, that, yeah, that no would be way. an abbreviated form. It'd be a thousand pages. Each. Yeah, exactly. I mean, minimum. And so I said, we, we got to break this down into smaller pieces. I, you know, I can't do the encyclopedia. I mean, first of all, it's going to take me multiple years to write it and put it all together. And it's going to be so long. Nobody's going to read it. So, uh, you know, I said, let's, let's break it into small chunks. Let's talk about one piece of the puzzle first. And, and that piece, which is arguably the most important piece is nutrition. So how does nutrition relate to our energy levels? And this is a, a huge piece of the, the chronic fatigue epidemic. Uh, I would say nutrition and circadian rhythm and sleep are probably the two biggest causes of why people are struggling with their energy. And the, the goal of this book, you know, unlike most diet books, this is not saying, you know, here's the, the you know, I figured out the, the one best diet. Everybody else has got it wrong. It wasn't low fat. It wasn't low carb. It wasn't keto. It wasn't vegan. It was really, it's this other thing. It's, it's really not that. It's a collection of science-based strategies as far as what to eat, how to eat, when to eat. Um, that that can be tied in with any particular dietary pattern that you're already adopting. So I'm not asking if, if, if you're paleo or if you're vegan or if you're keto or whatever, Mediterranean, I'm not asking you to change that. And these are all, this is dozens of strategies that you can then incorporate into the dietary pattern of your choosing. So I feel like that's a, it's, it's a really key piece of the puzzle for a lot of people. They're going to get many, many strategies they can just immediately plug in with pretty minimal effort and get big results from. On the other hand, from a marketing and, and business perspective, it's a bit disadvantageous to do things this way. It, it, you know, you can, as you probably know, in this industry, it's, it's way easier to sell people on, I've got the magic diet, you know, just follow my specific, you know, new, new diet that I figured out. And that's the answer to all your problems. Really, this is this is a focus on just compiling a whole bunch of different nutrition-related strategies that anyone can start to plug into what they're already doing. Again, obviously, you've connected the dots with respect to the diet's influence on the mitochondrial health. So, how how do you how can you summarize that connection best? Yeah, well, I think first let's talk a bit about mitochondria and what they are and how they work. So, you know, in in high school and college biology courses, we're all taught to think of the mitochondria as these sort of 
mindless energy generators. They just sort of take in food we eat, mostly carbs and fats, and then they pump out cellular energy in the form of ATP. And it turns out really in the last five or 10 years, there's, there's a whole new understanding of mitochondria that's emerged, largely due to the work of uh, um, a scientist who runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego, Dr. Robert Navio, who I think is one of the most brilliant scientists uh, and has created one of the biggest breakthroughs in medicine, I think, in the last century, arguably. Uh, and what is, that break, what is that breakthrough? That, that breakthrough is that he's figured out that mitochondria have basically a second role other than energy production. And that is in cellular defense. It turns mm -hmm. out, in his words, mitochondria are the central hub of the wheel of metabolism. And they have this role as not just energy producers, but as environmental sensors. And they are constantly sampling the environment around them and figuring out what's going on in the body. And, are, and basically they're asking one fundamental question. Are we under attack? Is there something we need to defend against? And this is the big key. Their role, these, these dual roles of mitochondria and energy production and cellular defense are mutually exclusive. So to the degree that mitochondria are picking up on some kind of dangers that are present, and we can, we can talk about what those dangers are and how they detect them, uh, they, they are turning down the dial on energy production. So from this paradigm, uh, from this understanding of what mitochondria are doing, we can think of our energy levels, since mitochondria are, of course, our cellular energy generators. They're what provide the vast majority, virtually all of the energy to virtually all of the cells of our body. If the mitochondria are turning down the dial on energy production, subjectively on a macro level, us as an organism, a collection of trillions of these cells filled with mitochondria feel the symptom of fatigue. And we can think of our energy levels, our subjective sense of whether we were filled with energy or whether we have fatigue as largely a function of the degree to which our mitochondria are detecting the presence of dangers or threats in the body. Absolutely. So the key though, is to understand that and optimize mitochondrial function. And in your mind, what is the, can you describe some of the single biggest threats that cause or that lead to mitochondrial dysfunction? Yeah. Uh, I would imagine they are constantly focused on oxidative stresses. Absolutely. So basically, you know, mitochondria, it turns out, can detect the presence of almost any type of stressor imaginable. Everything from, you know, poor nutrition to environmental toxins to psychological stress to um, sleep deprivation to you know, really anything, you name it. And the reason why is that they pretty much every type of stressor can be boiled down to just a few sort of basic mechanisms. It's things that cause, as you said, oxidative stress, things that cause uh, increased inflammatory cytokines, and also something called purinergic signaling, which is actually leakage of cellular contents into the bloodstream, including energy molecules like ATP and ADP. And it turns out that mitochondria can can sense the presence of those molecules when they have been leaked out of the cell where they're not supposed to be. And that is a sign of cellular damage that is, that's occurred. And when the mitochondria get those, when there's those receptors 
for those molecules are sensing that those energy molecules are not inside the cell where they belong. They're floating around outside. They go, oh, there's cellular damage occurring. We're under attack. Let's turn down the dial on energy production and shift resources towards cellular defense. So basically every type of stressor imaginable can be boiled down to oxidative stress or, or reactive nitrogen species. Uh, and inflammation and pure energic signaling, these, these energy molecules that are leaking outside the cell. There was a, there was a study even on psychological stress. Um, mm -hmm. Martine Picard and Doug Wallace, famous mitochondrial researcher, where they're conducting a study in a field called mitochondrial psychobiology. And they basically took a, a group of participants and had them do public speaking. And you might know that uh, I think the fear of public speaking is even greater than the fear of death by most people. And uh, so people have this very intense stress reaction. And then on top of that, they had, um, they had someone basically shout kind of obscenities and insults towards the person who was, who was speaking to kind of simulate even more stressful response. And they detected the leakage of mitochondrial DNA literally within minutes of that psychological stressor, leakage of mitochondrial DNA into the bloodstream. So even something like psychological stress can now induce enough stress at the cellular level to cause damage and to cause leakage of those contents, which then are again uh, being sensed by receptors on mitochondria throughout the body. And then they're determining, hey, we're under attack. We need to shift resources towards cell, cell defense turn down the dial on energy production. So even something like psychological stress can cause this kind of reaction. And, and it's not so much the quality, quant, quantitative one. It's, it's like Hans Salia did a lot, he's done a lot of work on this, but the, the levels for each individual person vary. So that's what one stress for one person would be actually beneficial, almost a hormetic benefit, whereas others, it would be devastating. So. Um, exactly. Actually, actually, you know, that's actually one of my favorite topics. Um, this has to do with something I call the resilience threshold. And I like to think of fatigue as having really two fundamental causes. One is all of these different kinds of environmental and lifestyle stressors, whether it's psychological stress, poor nutrition, toxins, sleep deprivation, whatever it is. The other thing that that interplays with, and this is often left out by a lot of people, is, is you, is what is happening at the cellular level inside of your body. And the key thing to understand here is that our cells can either be filled with big, strong mitochondria and lots of them, or weak, fragile, shrunken, broken, dysfunctional mitochondria and very few of them. And it's also been shown in research that in numerous studies, that uh, if you look at older people, they generally have somewhere between 50 to 75% lower mitochondrial capacity than a young person. And, and they've quantified this actually by decade and even shown, have, it's been shown that uh, mitochondrial capacity declines by about 10% with each decade of life. Now, people listening might think, well, oh, that, you know, that, that really sucks. That's a shame that you know, the aging process causes this huge decline in mitochondria. But in fact, that's not actually the case. It's not a natural function of aging. 
because we know from other research that when they look at mitochondrial capacity of healthy 70-year-olds who, uh, who are lifelong exercisers, lifelong athletes, they don't have lower mitochondrial capacity than an adult at 40 years old. So what, what that tells us is the loss of mitochondria is not a function of aging per se. It's a function of lack of hormetic stress in your life. And those mitochondria have to be challenged and stimulated in order to stay big and strong. The same thing is true. Uh, you know, the, the best analogy to think about this is if you've ever broken an arm or a leg, or you know somebody who has, and they've had a cast on for six weeks or eight weeks, and then they get that cast off. I've broken a lot of bones in my life, so I've seen this happen many times. Um, there's two things that you notice immediately when you get that cast off. One, that arm or the leg is really hairy, and I have no idea why that occurs. Maybe you know. <laughs> but the, the other thing, the more important thing, is the muscles have shrunken to half the size. You know, that's arm and leg. It doesn't have to be. You can use blood flow restriction training and, and abort all those muscle loss if you do it. Yes, aggressively. fair enough. But nobody told me that when I was a kid and I broke all, <laughs> kinds, of, I broke all kinds of bones. Um, so the, the, what's going on there is literally within the span of just a few weeks, those muscles atrophy because the body is pretty ruthless in getting rid of any tissue that it doesn't need for survival. So if if you're not using that and it's not being stimulated and if the body goes, oh, it's not necessary for survival. Let's get rid of it. Uh, the same thing happens inside of your cells with mitochondria. If you're not using them and stimulating them and challenging them, the body says, well, I guess we don't need to maintain these energetically costly you know, cellular organelles. Let's get rid of them. They're not needed. So if, if, if you can lose half your muscle mass on an arm or a leg in the span of six or eight weeks, just imagine what happens inside of your cells at the mitochondrial level from the modern anti-hormetic lifestyle over the course of years and decades. Huge, huge decline in it's, mitochondrial. It's mostly anti-movement too. It's not just anti-hormetic, it's anti-movement. Exactly. You know, we're, we're so committed to these conveniences that we have and are unwilling to, to many, not all, of course, many are unwilling to engage in those exercises that push us and stress us. So, um, yeah, it's interesting too, because a lot of the function of the mitochondria is related to your metabolic health. And I guess if you could pinpoint one single physical parameter, it's the amount of muscle mass you have that contributes to metabolic flexibility and health because the muscle is what has loaded with these glucose receptors that suck in the glucose after you, it spikes in a meal when you're eating them. So if you don't have a lot of muscle mass, you're going to, you're going to get, you're going to lead, it'll lead to insulin resistance. Yes. Absolutely. It's, it's a, yeah. It's a major contributor and, and sarcopenia loss of a too little muscle mass is a, is a leading contributor to early death as well. Frailty and weakness in older ages is especially common. Half of adults over the age of 50 have sarcopenia and 20 to 35% of younger adults, 30 to 50, uh, have sarcopenia as well. And it is absolutely, as you said, a huge contributor to um, early decline and energy levels. So mm -hmm. it's not only helping to maintain hormonal health as far as insulin sensitivity, but uh, it's, it's also been linked with fatigue severity. Too little muscle mass is strongly correlated with increased se fatigue se severity. So we know that that's one of the two big piece pieces in body composition. 
one is too much fat and the other one is of course too little muscle mass and they both are playing a, a big big and important role in causing and contributing to chronic fatigue well it's been four to six months since i last read your book so it's been a while i don't remember the specifics and i should have taken notes but i've transitioned to not reading on kindle and listening to it as an audiobook uh and for those of you who don't know his books not even out yet. How could it be an audiobook? Well, you can take a PDF or a Word document. And if you have an iPhone, I think you could do it on Android too. You can teach the that phone to read the book to you, whatever speed you oh, want. So it's, it's a pretty cool setup. So that's what I did with your book. And I don't recall, but wow. after that explanation, I forgot what I was going to ask. I forgot. Yeah, I actually, I just recorded the, the audio for the audiobook just a couple of weeks you, ago. You, you personally? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I don't think I've ever done that for my books. It's just like yeah, just by the time investment. It was it was quite a work. It was three full days of being in the studio, and uh, here down in here in Costa Rica, it wasn't an ideal studio either. It was a tiny little claustrophobic room with no air ventilation. So I was in there sweating my sweating my ass off for for hours reading this book, and then when I when I couldn't take the heat anymore and I couldn't breathe, I'm like, okay, I need a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Well, that's, it's always a good thing. Yeah, actually, one of the things I learned as I'm aging, I've always had good vision and I was just using my vision for nearsight. I, you know, I had perfect distance vision, 2015, 20, 2020, until like about less than a year ago. And then it just collapsed. I had my, my developed myopia. And it's because I was reading near too much, that included reading on the beach. So I, I, that's why I stopped reading. So anyone who's getting up there and you're just looking at screens all day, you definitely want to look in, in the distance because you're, you're, it's, the, it's just another example of if you, if you stop using a function, your body's going to get rid of it for you. And if you're not using distance visions, you're going to lose it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, would, I didn't even think that was possible, but I proved it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, what would you... You've been doing this for a while and uh, you know, you're an avid student and I'm wondering what you believe the major contributors, if you can maybe rank order them to mitochondrial dysfunction, what would they be in your mind? So I think circadian rhythm disruption and sleep deprivation is huge. Is number one, you rate that as number one? Arguably right up, maybe a tie with nutrition. And um, so stress is below those. Because obviously you mentioned that. I mean, you, are you, there is no right or wrong answer. It's just it, your impression. There's no it, right or wrong answer. It varies based on the individual. But yeah, I would say I would rank nutrition and, uh, and circadian rhythm and sleep issues as probably being tied for number one. If I'm generalizing, of course, there are individuals yeah, who sure. eat a good diet and, and sleep well and have a good circadian rhythm, but are deeply traumatized and, and have major psychological stress and are going through a divorce and you know, that's the entire cause of their issues. So, uh, you know, it, it varies based on the individual, but yeah, I would say those two are probably number one, then stress. Uh, I would say blood sugar issues are huge. Gut health is huge. What about exercise? Where do you put that in the mix? Or, so, um, I would say lack of hormetic stress, maybe exercise being one. Okay. Yeah, is I mean it's really hard to 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 rank order nutrition, circadian rhythm, sleep, hormesis yeah, because they're they're all huge. Um, I almost want to say they're tied for number one, but that's a cop out of your question. <laughs> well, um, that's okay. But, <laughs> like I said, there's no there's no right or wrong answer. It's just your perception. Yeah. yeah. So well, that's good. And you know, it's it's sad in my mind because 
it seems, and maybe this is because I'm obsessive compulsive, that optimizing your circadian rhythm is probably the easiest damn thing to do on the planet. I mean, it's almost total control. I mean, unless you have a family and you got a night job or something, you know, but it's, if you don't, it's pretty easy to get your butt to bed before shortly after sundown, you know, and get up early. It's not that hard. I mean, my aura ring score, uh, when I take it off in the morning, I'm almost every day, it's hundred percent optimized on circadian rhythm because it's just so simple to do. Yeah. Well, unfortunately it's not that simple and easy for, for most people. Um, you know, one out of three adults sleeps less than six hours a night. And uh, another one third complain of difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, having nightly awakening. So it's extremely common for people to have sleep problems. And a lot of it, I, I don't think can be reduced down to just getting your butt to bed on time, though, not to take anything away from your point. That is arguably maybe the single most important thing you could do is just have a consistent bedtime and a deep commitment to, you know, every night by 930 or 10 or whatever the time is. I'm in bed without exception, maybe the single most important thing that you could do, but, but light is also playing a huge role and nutrition is playing a huge role. So, uh, people are not getting enough light during, during the daytime and they're not timing it to get that morning light in their eyes. You know, every day when I wake up, first thing I do is I take my dogs out to my land here and I watch the sunrise and I get that early morning sunlight in my eyes. I do some, some movement and some breathing practices in the sun. And that's how, how to start the day, right? You're getting that circadian rhythm going strong because those blue light photons are, are entering the eyeballs, feeding back into the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain, where they are then uh, interacting with the circadian clock that impacts on our sleep-wake cycles, our mood, our energy, um, and regulates or impacts many, many different hormones and neurotransmitters. So that's a huge thing most people just aren't doing. It, we also know that the, the difference between daytime light exposure and evening light exposure makes a big difference. We know that outdoor light is a hundred to a thousand fold greater light intensity. And the brain, the circadian clock in the brain learns to distinguish what is day and what is night based on the differences in light intensity as along with the, the color of the wavelengths of that light. So when you don't have that differential, when you start your morning uh, in, in indoor environments under indoor lighting, looking at screens, and you end your day in indoor environments with indoor lighting, looking at screens, you don't have a big differential. You don't have that hundred thousand fold differential like we're supposed to have between daytime and nighttime light exposure. And, and that basically creates a sort of permanent, chronic, you know, not permanent, but chronic state of of semi jet lag that most people have just normalized to, and they don't even realize that there's a problem. Um, we also know that nutrition impacts on this. So basically there's, there, there's essentially two different clocks. And uh, you could break it down and say, there's a lot more because it turns out we have clocks in basically every sort of tissue imaginable from our skin to our organs and, and so on. But we can think of the central clock in the brain, the one I just mentioned, that is primarily responsive to light signals. We also have peripheral clocks throughout our body that are largely responsive to nutrient input. This is something I talk heavily about in the book, Eat for Energy. Um, and the goal is really to synchronize these two as closely as possible. 
so that all of these things that the circadian clock does from sleep and wake cycles to mood to energy to impacting on hormones and neurotransmitters that affect mood and energy and motivation and all these other things, uh, the ability to feel joy, the ability to feel to, to be motivated, to be productive and so on. Um, when those are synchronized, that's when you're going to sleep well and you're going to have high energy. So circadian rhythm is basically the, the, the link, you know, sleep and energy are two sides of the same coin and they are linked by circadian rhythm. So having a strong circadian rhythm is the key to both deep sleep and high energy levels. And the way we do that, you, you use light to optimize the central clock, you use nutrition to optimize the peripheral clocks and sync them with the central clock. And there's a few strategies I talk about in the book to do this. Um, the most important one is time-restricted eating. So mm -hmm. you want to have that TRE window, uh, ideally between six to 10 hours. Now, we know from Sachin Panda's work that most people are nowhere close to this. Uh, about 85% of people that he had used this food tracking app, 85% uh, turns out are eating way more often than they realize and for a way longer period during the day. More than 12 hours a day. More than 12 yeah, hours. From 85% had 13 to 16 hour eating windows. Wake get up in the middle of the night and eat. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. So it's basically almost from the moment you wake up, let's say it's 7 a.m. Uh, to the moment you go to bed. People are either consuming coffee with sugar and cream or they're snacking or uh, some, something's going, some calorie containing substance is going into their body. Now, we know that this is a huge problem. It's basically the equivalent of having light go into your eyes for that long a period of time. If, if, you, if you don't have an adequate darkness window, you're causing circadian disruption and you're suppressing melatonin and you're getting all the consequences in terms of hormones and neurotransmitters, sleep and wake cycles, energy, all that stuff. You're getting the consequences if you have light glaring into your eyes uh, for too long of a portion during the day, which we also have in the modern world, right? Because we prior to artificial light, the sun went down, then we just had firelight, which is predominantly, you know, orange and red doesn't disrupt circadian rhythm. And now we have all these artificial light sources from indoor lighting to screens, which there are studies showing that just indoor lighting alone suppresses melatonin levels by upwards of 70%. And this is a huge factor because melatonin, it turns out is much more than just this sort of sleep supplement. It's first of all, it's a hormone. And second of all, it turns out that it's sort of the mitochondrial targeted antioxidant. It is arguably one of the most important things in the body, as far as biochemicals to protect your mitochondria and make sure they don't accumulate lots of damage. And that's supposed to surge every night. Well, the modern world, as I said, just suppresses melatonin levels by upwards of 50 or 70% just by being in standard room light, not even having some sort of really bright light source like computer screens or anything like that uh, or phones. So that's one thing. Um, the, the feeding window is basically the same thing. So if you have food well, going before, into your before we go Before we go to yeah. the feeding window, what you just said sounds like oh, everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you that that is not the case. I found this out only a few weeks ago and was so excited. And anyone who I contacted, some giants in health, didn't know this. The only one that knew it was you when I, when I connected with you. And of course, I wasn't surprised. But 
you know, when you ask most people where's melatonin produced, they think it's the pineal gland. It's only 5%, 95% of it's in the mitochondria. And this is a massive function. But I, I, if, you can, if you can hold your thought, I just want you to dive down that rabbit hole for a little bit because it's connected to getting full sun exposure on your skin. Yes, you can do PBM. Yes, you could do near, far, infrared saunas. But ideally, you want to get it from the sun. And there's no charge for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so... It, this is this is a fascinating story that directly involves you. So, probably two or three years ago, uh, I saw this, this study that blew my mind, and it was talking about um, subcellular melatonin being. What's the writer? What's the writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. It being produced by by mitochondria, and how melatonin is playing. You know, I, I was already aware of this research that most people, as you said, are not even aware of, talking about how important melatonin is for mitochondrial health. So this now blew my mind. Whoa, light is impacting this other, this other um, source of melatonin, not from the pineal gland in the brain, but at the mitochondria level. And, and light is stimulating this. And we know that mitochondria are hugely reliant on melatonin for being protected. So I started to piece this together. And then I think my, my uh, computer closed that uh, we have a lot of power outages here in, in Costa Rica. So it, it, it just shut down. And then I lost that study and I, I spent weeks searching for it and I couldn't find it again. And then when I spoke to you recently, a couple months ago, you told me about it, you were talking about it. And I said, Oh my God, can you send me that study? I've been looking for that study forever. And, uh, and so, yeah, it turns out basically now they've done quite a bit of research showing yeah. that specifically uh, red and near infrared light. It's a little bit of a weird thing in the, in the study, they call it near infrared, but they're actually using 670 nanometers, which is technically red, um, that it directly stimulates the production of melatonin at the cellular level. So melatonin to put this to, to quickly summarize, melatonin is a mitochondrial targeted antioxidant that is mm -hmm. vital for preventing your mitochondria from accumulating damage. Uh, it's evolved. Mitochondria have evolved with melatonin since the beginning, even the ancestors of mitochondria before, uh, before, uh, mitochondria even existed were reliant on melatonin. So melatonin is this ancient molecule that's been around for millions of years. That's, that's vital for protecting these cell parts and especially melatonin so much so that they've evolved to produce it themselves, um, and not just rely on pineal gland melatonin. And, um, and they're producing it largely in response to light. Yeah. So, so you, you this is, you can't swallow melatonin and put it in your mitochondria. It doesn't work that way, folks. You've got to get exposure to light to do it. Otherwise you're not going to get it. And then, then your mitochondrial health is going to be challenged and go much less optimal than you could have. Right. So you asked me earlier to talk about some of the biggest factors contributing to fatigue and mitochondrial dysfunction. Well, this is another one of those big factors, light deficiency. How many people in the modern world are not getting adequate sunlight? I mean, I, I'm, I'm continually shocked by this, but I sometimes, uh, you know, when I was doing one-on-one -on -one consults with people, I would ask them, you know, how much sunlight do you get per week? And, you know, for a large portion of people, it's none. It's literally none. Oh. Maybe get it on their hands as they walk from the parking lot to, you know, the, the, their, their office or something like that, but they get... They spend almost no time per week getting sun exposure on your body. And our bodies need that sun exposure. 
um, not only for vitamin D, but many other pathways that, that we need. It turns out there's many different bioactive wavelengths and they, they um, stimulate a whole bunch of different physiological pathways. So you cannot replace uh, sun exposure with a vitamin D pill. That's, that's a very dangerous narrative. And, uh, and, and red, I'm assuming red, you don't, red, because, because you live in Costa Rica, you don't swallow vitamin D either. No. There's uh, no need for it. What's up? There's no need for it. You're at nine degrees latitude. <laughs> yes. I mean, and, 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 and I get lots of sun because, because I surf. I start yeah. the day uh, in, in the morning, pretty much every morning, other than today, where I had this podcast with Dr. Mercola, <laughs> who's blocking my surf time. Um, <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm getting tons and tons of light exposure on my body. I, I'm from Mediterranean ancestry, so I can tolerate quite a lot of sun exposure. And I get at least two hours a day on my body and, and in the, in the, in water, I'm getting it pretty much on my, my full upper body. And even I, just, on my I want to take a slight tangent on the surfing because I've concluded, I, I think I understand why it's so such a helpful uh, pastime for most people. Obviously you're in the salt water and you're getting the sun, but that combination of the sun exposure on your skin and your feet in the water actually creates an electrical circuit. And, and you are, that is the best, especially if you're in the ocean, the best ground you get in the world. Uh, yeah. In North America, you can put you know ground into your outlet or even the ground itself. And because of the dirty electricity, it's a huge problem. And I've been a big fan of grounding for a long time, but the only grounding I recommend is the ocean. That's the ultimate. So I think that, I think you're getting solid benefits and we can't quantitate it, but I think that's a big reason why you're getting such, such a good big bang for getting out. Yeah, there. absolutely. I mean, there's so many layers of what's going on in this simple act. It's also because it's in the morning, you're getting lots of bright light oh, yeah. Yeah. in your eyes. So you get circadian rhythm. You got the exercise component. You have uh, a component of play and fun that's integrated into this. A component of, uh, you know, a bit of stress. It challenges you mentally and physically. Um, you sometimes are asked to hold your breath, which is a specific type of hormesis. You know, sort of intermittent hypoxia. Um, so there's many things that are layered into this simple act that you know, you know, uh, a regular person might look at it and just say, "Oh, yeah, there's people surfing. Yeah, whatever." But <laughs> if you consider it on, on this sort of physiological level, how many good things are you doing for your physiology with that, you know, starting your day with this one act? I mean, you're, you're, you're priming your physiology for, for energy and good health and good sleep and immune health and, and so much more. So let's just finish off with the benefits from sun exposure, because we, I know of three, and I think you could probably add a few. So one is obviously vitamin D from the UVB. The other is the near and far, near and infrared and red to improve or increase mitochondrial melatonin. And then this is a new one I learned from Morley Robbins is uh, that actually is responsible for converting retinol or vitamin A to retinoids, which is really crucial for the act for the function of vitamin D. So are you aware of any other benefits of sun exposure uh, physiologically? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so one would be the melanocortin system. Um, and, and this is a complex system. It's, you know, there's not a huge amount of research on it, but, uh, basically sun exposure interacts with this thing called the melanocortin system, which involves, uh, melanocyte stimulating hormone or alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, which impacts heavily on regulating inflammation and regulating appetite, believe it or not. So it, it turns out that that system being activated is probably part of, um, you know, I shouldn't say that system being activated, but 
whether or not that system is activated is part of the obesity epidemic that has coincided with a decrease in adequate sun exposure as we've shifted from outdoor lives to indoor lives. Um, another one is nitric oxide. And there are really interesting studies in, um, in animals where they genetically alter them to not even be able to produce vitamin D in response to uh, UVB exposure. And they show that even without vitamin D production, uh, exposure to UVB has profound effects on uh, not only reducing uh, obesity and reduce and improving metabolic health, but specifically impacting on cardiovascular disease risk. Um, and that is because this, when we get hit with uh, ultraviolet light on the skin, it does more than just synthesize vitamin D. It also creates a surge of nitric oxide, which of course impacts on blood pressure regulation. And it turns out plays a big role in regulating uh, cardiometabolic risk, risk of, of cardiovascular disease. So we know that that's a factor as well. And we know that, that sun exposure, we know from human studies, uh, that sun exposure is a big factor in terms of risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. You know, the famous, um, at this point, pretty famous Swedish study with about 30,000 women, where they showed that the women with the lowest sun exposure had uh, dramatic elevations in their risk of cardiovascular disease that were equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes per day. So if we were going to quantify the risk that you're incurring with low sun exposure, that's, that's the best study I've seen in that regard. And probably an associated increase in breast cancer too, I would mm -hmm. assume. Uh, from a, yeah. from a, that's, that's been shown as well, actually studies out of um, one of the, the Middle Eastern countries, maybe Saudi Arabia or Iran or something like that, where they wear the hijab that the women do. Um, the rates of breast cancer in countries where they wear that are sky high. Well, it's, it's so simple. The, the, you know, I was just commenting with Morley last week that the because he's been around as long as I have. And the, and the comment was that the longer we study this and the more we learn, the more we realize it's pretty darn simple. It's not that complicated. Now, you know, the implementation could be a challenge, but it's the, the basics are pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I have a bit of mixed feelings on this and I anger some people when I, when I talk about this, but um, within the natural health and sort of functional medicine movement, there's such a heavy focus on individualization and, and everybody being a unique individual and figuring out their unique causes. And, uh, you know, and then they've gone in depth with genetics and you know, the, the different genes that are activated when you do this or that, and we can do genetic testing and we can do, um, you know, all these different organic acid tests and hormone tests and urine and saliva and da, 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 and we can map out all of your unique biochemistry, but, and, and there's value in that, particularly when someone has, uh, some kind of chronic symptoms that they have been unable to resolve with, uh, just sort of more general recommendations of eating well and exercising and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, however, the, the truth is that we have in the last 100 years, massively accelerating risks of dozens of diseases. And that is not the result of everybody being a unique individual and just responding randomly to what's going on. And all of a sudden everybody's genetics just decided to express lots of disease. It's because the modern world 
changed in very fundamental ways that, uh, you know, as far as the modern diet, as far as the modern lifestyle, as far as being sedentary, being in climate controlled offices, losing all these forms of hormetic stress, um, sleeping less, disrupting our circadian rhythm, you know, these are the main drivers of all of these, pretty much all of these different chronic diseases that have massively accelerated in the last hundred years. And, and the, the answer isn't to treat everybody as a unique individual and pretend like we don't know all of these universal factors that are the, the actual root cause drivers of these diseases. It's, it's to address the foundation of these root cause drivers of disease. Yeah. That's where you have to start. It's pretty amazing. And I know it's, it sounds oversimplistic and sort of a shotgun approach, but there, you know, I seen tens of thousands of patients personally. And, you know, I got, after a while, it's just got, it got to the point where you have to do these things. Otherwise you cannot have me consult with you because you're not going to yes. do these things. I can't get you better. These are so essential to optimizing your health. You've got to do that. So, you know, it, it, people don't have to, I mean, you know, but it's their choice, but at least they need to know that it's crucial. Yeah. So yeah. I want to, I want to get back to obesity because interestingly, I'm writing a book too. Oh, cool. Actually co-writing a book. The, the primary author would be Chris Noby, who's an ophthalmologist out of Colorado. And he's, he's, I, I view him as the uh, 21st century Weston Price. And well, he didn't travel to these remote populations. He's compiled the data and really put together very, very impressive arguments to show that excessive linoleic acid, which started to increase about the 1860s, 1870s, essentially 150 years ago, somewhere in that range. Uh, that is the catalyst and the spark for almost all these chronic degenerative disease, including obesity, uh, diabetes, heart disease, cancer. And uh, it's interesting because it's some of these, the data he's compiled, I mean, there's certain cultures like China or other, uh, even I think India too, where they, they controlled, it was, a, it was a natural experiment. They, they didn't have hardly any sugar. They were eating like one teaspoon of sugar a day, virtually nothing. If that isn't a low carb diet, I don't know what is. But their vegetable oils or seed oils went through the roof. And you can see this total correlation with obesity and cancers. So I'm so I think you addressed this somewhat, not at the level I would have liked to see because I'm sort of obsessed with this. Uh, although, and I, I want to go into another component because I, th I think that linoleic acid and one other factor of, of, of ex exposure to a toxic metal that I think most of us have that that may be the biggest component to improving energy. So why don't you give us your perspective on linoleic acid? Because I'm sure it's something you're quite familiar with. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think there's a lot of compelling evidence at this point that it's a contributor to the propensity to become obese and that it's a contributor to insulin resistance uh, and to chronic inflammation. We know that when, that, when there's too much omega-6, too little omega-3s, and when that ratio is out of balance, uh, we, we are, we're become much more prone to chronic inflammation. Chronic inf elevations in inflammatory cytokines uh, are themselves a signaling molecule, as I mentioned earlier, that mitochondria pick up on that um, downregulates, that basically they detect as, oh, if there's inflammation, that must mean there's something wrong in the body. And we're going to turn down the dial on fatigue, on energy production, and uh, shift resources towards cell defense. So I think there's absolutely a compelling case that uh, linoleic acid consumption is involved in all of those things and probably more, probably also neurodegenerative diseases, cancers, mm -hmm. 
many other things. I, I will say, however, I, I think it is probably going maybe a bit too far to say that it's sort of the main factor that is like the cause of most chronic disease. Uh, I would say that there's a really compelling case that excess body fat is a main driver of much of the chronic disease that we've accelerated. It's totally related to linoleic acid consumption. It, it is. However, I wouldn't say that linoleic acid consumption is the primary driver of, of, of why we have an obesity epidemic and an epidemic of overweight. I think oh. it's a contributor. All right. Well, I'm going to send you the book because I'm almost finished editing it. And okay. Well, let me let me tell you what I think. What let me tell you what I think okay. is. I, I do think it's a contributor. I'm not I'm not um, denying its contribution, but I think it's 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 very clear that uh, the food reward hypothesis of obesity is the most compelling uh, explanation for why we have an epidemic of of being overweight, and uh, and we now have in the last few years a lot of validation for this. So the, this, the basics of this hypothesis, which has, there's many researchers who have done research on this and have promoted it, but I would say neurobiologists and obesity researchers, Dr. Stefan Guillenet is probably the most notable one. Um, he, basically what's going on is when we consume what's called highly palatable, hyper palatable, um, or highly rewarding food. Basically, it means food that tastes really, really good, that lights up the pleasure centers, the reward centers in our brain very strongly. Um, we create this super physiological stimulus, and then something shifts in our physiology. There's, I'm oversimplifying here. There's a lot of different hormonal mechanisms and damage to the leptin receptors in the brain and insulin resistance and all kinds of things that sort of interplay with this. But the basic idea is that we have something called homeostatic eating which is basically that our body between our brain, uh, the leptin produced by our fat cells and many other different hunger and satiety hormones are in a feedback loop that naturally regulates how much food we consume in accordance with how much, body, how much energy our body actually needs, how much calories our body actually needs. So, and this is, you know, all animal species do this. This is why we don't see obesity epidemics of squirrels and deer. Right. And, and because when they're living in their their natural environment, um, they're in this homeostatic eating, this natural regulation. And of course, these hormones and brain regions have evolved to do this function for millions of years. Humans have it, too. Now, what happens when you create too much of this uh, super physiological reward in the brain from food is the body starts shifting out of homeostatic eating into hedonic eating for pleasure and you start consuming way more calories and that's in tandem with, uh, and you start consuming way more calories because it's pleasurable because if somebody puts ice cream in front of you, you know, after you eat a big dinner and you say I'm full, well, now there's ice cream presented to you. Oh, oh all of a sudden you have more room for that ice cream, right? And you, you can end up eating hundreds of calories more. Beyond or, or a cake loaded with, with seed oils. Yes, exactly. And many of these hyper, this is the challenging confounding factor is many of the hyper rewarding processed foods in the modern diet are rich in combinations of sugar, uh, refined grains and seed oils. So, and those, those are some combination of mainly those three things 
is, is what creates this super logical, super physiological reward stimulus in the brain. So we, we know also this happens very quickly. For example, Kevin Hall uh, is an obesity researcher, did, did a study recently from two or three years ago where they basically took people for two weeks, they put them on a whole food diet, and then two weeks they put them on what they intended to be the same diet, the same calories, the same macronutrient breakdown of highly processed food. And what they showed is that uh, during the two weeks of highly processed food consumption, participants gained two pounds. And during the two weeks of whole food consumption, they lost two pounds, okay? And they found that the difference was, even though they intended these diets to be the same, when, people, when, when those participants were on the, the processed food diet, they ended up consuming 500 calories more per day. 500, this is no small amount of calories. So, um, and, that, and that's because those highly processed foods are one, uh, hedonically rewarding. So you're inclined to eat more because they taste well, good, but they also don't interact with all the hunger and satiety hormones in the same way. So you have to consume more of them before your body gets the signal. Oh, I'm full. I don't need to eat it. Yeah. We got so many other better things to talk about. And I actually disagree with Stephen on this. Okay. Uh, actually for many of the reasons you describe in your book, because you know, if you address the fundamental foundational causes, you're going to go back to the optimal type of pleasure. I forget the, the term used for it. The, you know, basically it's optimized. And, and all you have to do is address those. You don't have to go into some complex co collection of neurohormonal theories to address this. It's pretty foundational. It's pretty simple, pretty basic. You know, keep the like acid low exercise, get cell exposure, optimize circadian rhythm and time-restricted eating. Imagine that. You know, uh, that combination. Well, I, I, I agree with that, but I, I think you can't leave out whole foods and getting rid of processed foods. I mean, that, that has to be 100%. one of the other Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, in my experience, you know, everyone will agree to that, but they don't understand that when you're going to a restaurant, you are eating processed foods, almost mm -hmm. by definition. And anything they cook there in a restaurant, and 99% of the restaurants is going to be cooked in seed oils unless you're obsessive and you go back in the kitchen and tell and you let have them only use butter. So yeah, you're right. You got it. It's hundred percent processed food, which is a hard transition, you know, uh, to not eat any processed foods that I would say way less than 1% of the people do that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah. So it's basic. So I want to get some of the fun stuff because m much of the world knows you as for the infrared approach and, uh, you know, you basically, maybe just cut, and I don't recall if you, did you discuss that in uh, Eat for Energy? A bit, a bit? No, it's, it's really just all nutrition focused. Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I don't remember reading that. But, you know, I just want to plug that book again, because it's so good. I mean, it really gives you the foundations of the reasons. And, I'm, and we don't have to go deep, but maybe you can summarize it and how you would place that as a resource tool, like a biohacking tool into the eating strategy discussing need for energy. I think it's, it's an additive thing. It's not certainly the biggest, but it's a powerful tool. So what is your I think so too. I, I got a big one right behind me and against the wall there. Um, can you see it on, on my screen? Uh, that huge sort of horizontal white thing behind me on the wall. Yeah, okay. It's horizontal. So you usually it's vertical, not horizontal. Yeah, so this this one's on a stand, and you can you can actually rotate it vertical or horizontal. But I like it horizontal because then I can just get on this um, this couch next to me, 
and I can lay under it and get, you know, sort of like the, the lights are underneath on the bottom. What? No, you don't have one on the bottom as well. That's, it's oh, not half? a full like tanning bed setup, but, okay. uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a half tanning bed setup. Good. Excellent. Yeah. So yeah. you do that every day? Yes. Yeah. So, um, I, it's huge. I mean, I, I wrote a book on it because I'm so passionate about it and the research is, is incredibly impressive. Uh, we're, you know, at the time of writing my book, it was already over 5,000 studies. It's gotta be over 6,000 at this point, at least, um, on everything from skin anti-aging to combating autoimmune hypothyroidism, to speeding, uh, injuries, helping to heal various kinds of injuries and tissue damage and cuts and scrapes and tendon injuries, faster bone injuries, uh, to combating neurological disease, to boosting immune health, to fat loss, to muscle gain, to enhancing strength and endurance adaptations and fat loss adaptations, to exercise, to speeding recovery from exercise, uh, to incre increasing performance during exercise. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. It sounds almost uh, too good to be true. But it yeah, is. <laughs> it, it, it does seem too good to be true. And, you know, you would think if there's some, let's say some kind of a, a, a pharmaceutical that claimed to do all of these seemingly unrelated things, you would immediately go, oh, that sounds like snake oil. Or if somebody was trying to sell you a supplement that, that did all of those different things in all these different organ systems of the body, say, oh, that, that can't be true. How could it possibly act on all these different systems? And the reason why red and urine for red light do this, it goes back to what I was getting at earlier when I was talking about some of these universal basics. Our biology has, has evolved for millions of years to require adequate sun exposure in order to express not just optimal health, not just some peak of supernatural health, but normal health, just to function normally, we require uh, these different bioactive wavelengths. And red and near-infrared light, just like ultraviolet light uh, and vitamin D, is, is one of those things that our body requires. So uh, this is why it, it can affect so many different um, systems of the body. But in, in terms of the mechanisms, there's also an explanation there. Um, we know that what red and near infrared light do, they do, they do a few different things. One, they're directly stimulating ATP production at the mitochondrial level. There's an interaction with cytochrome C oxidase where those red and near infrared light photons are directly penetrating inside of your mitochondria where they are stimulating ATP production, energy production. Another layer is they also create a transient increase in reactive oxygen species, just like hormetic stressors do, like exercise, for example. And we also know that there's benefits from that. Um, when we get a transient rise in reactive oxygen species, those are signaling molecules for the mitochondria to grow bigger and stronger. In other words, to avoid the decline in mitochondrial capacity that I was talking about earlier that happens to most people as they age. And it uh, also causes them to make uh, melatonin. Exactly. I was, I was getting there. Um, okay. You beat me to it. So what, what, one other one is, um, a major one is that it is stimulating uh, the increase in growth factors. And these are all tissue specific growth factors. So um, in muscle cells, it increases IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one, which is a key growth factor for muscle growth. Uh, in the thyroid gland, it's stimulating specific growth factors that, that help regenerate thyroid gland tissue. In the brain, we have specific growth factors like 
NGF nerve growth factor and brain derived neurotrophic factor, uh, as well as in the, uh, in the skin, we have fibroblasts that are stimulated by red and infrared light to increase collagen production. So basically this is, if you were going to reduce that down, even though it's different growth factors and different tissues throughout the body, it, it's essentially a signal for growth and regeneration at the cellular level. In addition, you jumped the gun on this when you beat me to it, but uh, <laughs> melatonin is now a huge aspect of this. And I'm updating my book to shortly to write about this, also to do an update on all the different devices that are on the market. And I'm having, I'm working with a lot of these companies that are on the market to send their light to a third party lab, a uh, special lab in, I think, Pennsylvania that, uh, that, that will do precise, accurate measurements on the output of all these devices. This has been a, a big problem uh, over the last several years. There's been a lot of companies making misleading claims. So I'm trying to clean up the marketplace. Leading um, companies that you would be surprised and shocked at. So I, we're not going to name names, but you have yes. to be very, very careful. Yes, absolutely. So I'm really trying to, to, to clean up the marketplace and make everybody honest and everybody competing on a level playing field. Everybody sends their light to this lab. We, we get the measurements, the third-party lab data, and then I'm going to publish that in my book pretty soon. Um, Is that an updated version of your red light book? Yes. Yeah, it's going to be the version 2.0. Um, but well, Maybe we should head it back for that updated version because it's such a good topic. Yeah, I would love that. So the... The other thing that's going on here, the other reason I wanted to update the book is this melatonin aspect of the story, which, as we mentioned earlier, melatonin is this vastly, profoundly important mitochondrial targeted antioxidants, absolutely vital for protecting your mitochondria from harm and preventing them from accumulating uh, damage as you, as you age. So we know also that it's produced from red and near infrared light exposure, not just by the pineal gland, but at the cellular level in inside of ourselves by the mitochondria for the mitochondria. So it, I, I think it's likely, you know, we have this kind of story of antioxidants and oxidants. And, you know, there's so much that we could potentially go into here because there's a lot of myths and misconceptions around there. But um, the, the gist of it is, it isn't just more and more and more and more healthy for us if we just pump more and more antioxidants into our body. There is actually a balance. Our cells are trying to acquire a balance between oxidants and antioxidants because the oxidants aren't just bad guys. It turns out that they actually perform vitally important beneficial signaling functions like in the context of hormetic stress where uh, that transient rise in reactive oxygen species is actually the signal for the mitochondria to become bigger and stronger and for mitochondrial biogenesis to create more mitochondria from scratch. So we also know, um, you know this, is, this is kind of a fascinating story like in the history of science. It, it used to be thought that you know, we knew exercise was really beneficial for reducing risk of various diseases. But then it was thought this was maybe at least 10, if not more like 20 years ago, uh, it was thought, well, we know exercise is really beneficial, but the problem with it is that it creates all these reactive oxygen species, these free radicals that are causing damage. And 
if only we could get the benefits of exercise while eliminating all those harmful free radicals. So what they did was they did studies where they supplemented with antioxidants, things like vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin E, and they paired that with exercise. And what they showed when they, when they did those studies is not that you got all the benefits of exercise, but without these harmful bad guys, the free radicals, they showed that when you took antioxidants around exercise, you reduced or eliminated all the benefits of the exercise. So what that means, in other words, is that those free radicals aren't just bad guys. They're there performing vital signaling roles that help facilitate. Um, they're the catalyst for the cell and the mitochondria to make beneficial adaptations that are ultimately what confer all the benefits or most of the benefits of exercise. So, um, and you could, you could also uh, get, get the same impact if you jump into a cold pool after exercise, you can abort the benefits just by the same process and mechanism. Yeah, particularly with resistance training. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, because they're kind of um, uh, contradictory signals to the body. Right. right? So, um, so getting back to melatonin, if we now understand that the goal is not just to, you know, pump more and more antioxidants into our body and eliminate all these bad guys, the free radicals, the, the goal is really to maintain redox balance at the cell level, to allow the cell to regulate its own optimal balance of oxidants to antioxidants. And the cell has lots of powerful antioxidants, glutathione, superoxide, dismutase, catalase, and melatonin. And I think that this, this melatonin part of the story is really a, a new thing in physiology. This is not something that, as you mentioned earlier, this is not something that uh, lots of people understand and it's already incorporated yeah, into medical textbooks or something. But, but I think it's going to turn out that this melatonin aspect of the story may be that melatonin is the most important and powerful cellular yeah. antioxidant. And it, as we discussed, it goes up in exposure to red and near infrared. And yeah. it's interesting, if you look at the wavelengths from the sun, the, it, those frequencies are really much higher throughout a longer part of the day. And there's some people who theorize that it's the exposure to that by increasing the melatonin that it prepares your cells to be exposed to the dam more damage in UVB or UVB yes. rays. Yeah, I, I think that's likely. I think even speaking more broadly than that, I think it's likely that the, this, this sort of charging up of melatonin at the cellular level uh, from light exposure, from the red and near infrared portion is probably vital to protecting the, the mitochondria from harm from a wide variety mm -hmm. of stressors. Um, like you know, EMF, that's EMF for sure. Yes. I mean, we, we know, who, who with, known? <laughs> <laughs> we, we know with, uh, hormetic stress that, you know, doing exercise doesn't just protect the cells and the mitochondria from harm from, from exercise. It protects against a broad range of other stressors, you know? So having a body that, that does exercise that's fit protects you from oxidative damage that might occur from psychological stress or sleep deprivation or environmental toxins, right? Things that are totally unrelated to the initial uh, source of that hormetic stress that led to those adaptations. And I think, I think what we have with melatonin is probably something that's very similar. This is something critical for protecting our mitochondria from a broad range of basically every type of stressor. You've got to have those melatonin levels charged up, and that's a function of exposing your body to light.
Well, I look forward to your summary and uh, writing about more of it in your book, and we'll have you back on for that for sure. But I'd be negligent not to integrate right here a new passion for many, especially in light of the COVID, which should be methylene blue is why here, because it integrates into light exposure and you could improve the uh, benefits of methylene blue by combining it with this exposure to photobiomodulation or sunlight or near infrared sauna. I do, I do <laughs> before all of those. So it, it's interesting. I mean, it's the first drug ever created in modern medicine. It was in the 1880s, you know, it was, Paul Ehrlich put it together late 1880s or so. And it was from one of the German, I think it might've been IG Farben or BASF, one of them, but it's a, it's a dye. It's what dyes blue jeans. And, yeah. Funny, uh, funny enough, I have, my hand is stained blue oh. right because I had a little methylene blue accident yesterday as I was mixing some, um, some, some, some oil for, for topical use. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if you know this this part of the story, but uh, there's some really amazing research as far as methylene blue being used topically for anti aging benefits. There's even a new uh, cosmetics brand. They're not paying. The me. They should be paying me after this. Um, there's a cosmetics brand called uh, Blue Lean that has emerged that uh, has integrated methylene blue into their anti aging skincare. Interesting. Product. Does it does and, it stain the skin too? No. And this this is actually the cool thing when. What I, I I was resistant to using it for a long time because I was like I'm not going to use it on my face. It's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. My face blue. Well, when it's diluted in a carrier oil uh, or in some kind of a cream at a pretty low concentration, it doesn't stain the skin blue. And so you can you can apply it, you can get those benefits, and it has profound uh, anti aging effects, anti wrinkle effects that and and protects that skin from damage. So. Um, you know, and of course has nootropic effects, mitochondrial prote protective effects. Well, you know, this, this people listening aspect. so far have no idea what those are. So we should probably dive a little deeper. <laughs> and, yeah. and not only that, but as you discussed in a recent podcast or last year, it's also the parent molecule for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, which is a common drug used to treat COVID. So it probably works to treat infectious illnesses too, specifically SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, so, there's, been, there's been a, since I did that podcast, there's been a few studies that have come out on it uh, either pairing it with NAC or vitamin C, and they have shown that it is, is an effective treatment for COVID. Well, why don't you expand on it? Because just give a little bit more information because people are going to say, what? You're going to use that fishbowl cleaner to put it on your space or swallow yeah. it? Put it on your mind? <laughs> it's, it's funny that you, you say that because uh, methylene blue is probably, you know, I've actually known about it since I was 13 years old uh, because when I, was, when I was a kid, I was really into aquariums. And I had aquariums in my house and I used methylene blue all the time to treat fish diseases. Um, so it's kind of funny to rediscover it 20, 25 years later. And oh, now it has all these mitochondrial protective effects. And it's this amazing antioxidant for mitochondria and for, for um, and it's neuroprotective. It combats neurological disease and, and, and improves long-term brain health and acts as a nootropic and um, can help increase energy. And oh, maybe it's a treatment for... COVID and, you know, and, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to, to, and oh, now it's also in skincare and it's anti-aging for the skin. It's, it's really fascinating to sort of rediscover all, all the different amazing aspects for human use uh, after being a it's kid. Dirt, it's know, dirt cheap. I mean, like a bottle is like 20, 25 bucks and it would last you years because you need such a small dose, but maybe we, uh, so, yeah, it depends, depends what you use it for. The, yeah. the way they use it for new nootropics is, 
is interesting. I've seen people recommending really tiny dosages and the, and I, I spent some time, I, I was using it at these dosages and you know, I'd use one drop or two drops. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I spent some time digging into the, the scientific literature on it. And I found out that the doses used in a lot of these studies, for example, there's, there's studies where they use it to treat uh, depression, for example, uh, at their orders of magnitude, higher doses. So I, w- I want to get this right, but I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of around 15 milligrams per kilogram. No, and, that's, I, I yeah, would be right and, and, and that's leads, a really high dose, man. It seems like it, right? And they use it yeah. for, in the context of IV treatments. Um, oh, there's geez. some people using it for, for IV treatments. Even I've seen needed IV. popping up, uh, using it for, for treatment for long COVID in IV yeah. form. And they're using dosages like that. Um, so we're talking about you know a few hundred milligrams per day at those dosages. Whereas I, I think you know I've used way lower dosages like uh, in the neighborhood of, 10 to 30 milligrams a day. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are some distinctions there. It's also worth mentioning that there are some contraindications. There are some interactions with certain drugs that can be dangerous. And I think there's one, I'm spacing on the, uh, the specific med- medical condition. You might know it, but there's one yeah. where- SS, uh, SSRIs, because you can get serotonin syndrome. Yes, yeah, definitely with SSRIs, but there's also one um, strange medical condition. I forget what it is. Oh, G6PD? Yes, that's the one. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's contrary. I actually know a woman, Emily, uh, uh, DNA, uh, DNA. I forget the company she works for. She's really, really smart. She got stuck with it. It's like almost as bad as type one diabetes. I mean, it's just because it, it, that pathway makes NADPH, and it's like such a profoundly important antioxidant. It's almost as important as NAD plus. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah, so we're, I actually, next week, I'm going to interview Francisco Gonzalez Lima, whose interview will probably come on before yours, about methylene blue. He's at the University of Texas at Austin, and I think he's really one of the top researchers out there, and he's been working on this for a long time. So uh, I'm really looking be, forward to that discussion. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to, to hear his thoughts on the, the dosage issue. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that there's so many people using this as a nootropic and tiny dosages, you know, orders of magnitude less than... Uh, and what the research dosages are. So I'd, I'd be curious if you can make sense of that. And I want to kind of sidestep the methylene blue into another topic. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I interviewed Morley Robbins and his big pan, I mean, you know who he is, right, Morley? Yeah, the he's, the, he's the mineral he's guy, the, right? Mineral guy, his big focus had been on magnesium, but now he's kind of shifted more to copper, iron, uh, vitamin D and vitamin A. Uh, and his belief with methylene blue is that there's this really important copper enzyme. It's called ceruloplasma that stores most of the copper in your body and really vitally important for mitochondrial energy production. And the methylene blue, he believes, forms like a, it's like a polishing, a buffer so that this copper enzyme can get tarnished, you know, oxidized. And and the methylene blue kind of cleans it up so it works better, which is pretty pretty darn cool. Yeah, because, you know, there's not many people out there that know copper as well as Morley. He just like, he's got a, a photographic memory and he reads like hours every day. So it's pretty crazy. Uh, but awesome. it, the, the reason I mentioned that is that from working with, I've, I've studied iron toxicity for 30 years. I've known about it. Understanding that helped add about 20 years of life to my dad who would have been dead without me 
uh, diagnosing him with a hemochromatosis, which is an unusual condition, but the end result is it appears that almost everyone has problems with iron. And I thought the PUFAs were like the number one thing, but I think iron may be worse. So much so that I'm gonna write a book with Maury on this too. That's gonna to be for next year because it seems like almost it, the iron goes to storage. And it, it, the, the mechanism is that you have all this extra iron. It's a, one of the most potent oxidative catalysts in your body because it combines with that hydrogen peroxide through the Fenton reaction and forms hydroxyl free radicals, which are terrible. So some have some pretty profoundly effective rational rationalization that it's maybe one of the most important reasons for aging. And, uh, you know, you might ideally, it seems like you need to, I donate like four, your, a pint of blood four times a year. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, I, I, a few years ago, I went on a tangent where I was reading a lot about that on, um, I think from Vince Giuliano, one of the, Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, how's Vince doing? I've, I haven't talked to you him. Know, I keep meaning to, to have him on my podcast. I haven't connected with him yet, but I, uh, I, I mean, he's surprisingly him. in good chance. He's in his nineties, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and, you know, I was reading a lot about iron and, and then I discovered blood donation and it, you know, th th that's the, really this fascinating thing because the research on it is so impressive oh. as far as it's, it, it's ability to improve health and extend lifespan or uh, decrease risk of various diseases. And yet I, I think it's, I think there's a compelling argument that it might be the single biggest sort of not well-known key to, to longevity and disease prevention. Okay, well, that is so good to hear because that's my conclusion too. That's why I'm going to write a book on it with Morley because, you know, it, it has to be toned. So ideally you do it four times a year, but that is a big chunk of blood to lose. That's 500 <laughs> cc's of blood. And most people are going to be knocked out. So we're going to develop a protocol. We already have actually just going to give people the details on how to do it. But ideally you do it yourself at home. And, you, and if you're a wow. woman, you do like 100 cc's once a month, a man 150, and you pretty much wind up donating the same amount of blood over a year, but it's over a slower time. It allows your body much easier time to recover from that assault. Do you so think not, women, do you think women even need to do it or, or at least? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely true for postmenopausal, but I've got to have this dialogue because I just interviewed Maury last week. And we've had some discussions of, of, of a weekend when he agreed to write the book with me. Uh, but this iron storage is a big, big deal. And that, the most common diagnostic lab tests that are used to assess iron deficiency anemia are flawed because they're 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 looking at at serum uh, ferritin, which is in the blood, and and your ferritin, your iron is not stored in the blood; it's stored in your tissues. So you really need intracellular ferritin. There is no good lab test for it. So the argument is that most all of the iron is stored in your tissues, maybe ten times as much as it's showing up in the blood. So putting iron, you know, his contention is that anyone on iron supplement is just Bad, bad news. I imagine there's some clinical exceptions to that, but they are few and far between, would be my guess. Fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to hear. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited too. Yeah. Because it's so simple. You know, and, he, and he's totally in agreement with, with our position on sunlight exposure. I mean, that is the key. You need sun. You don't need vitamin D supplements. You need sun exposure. Now, I know for those of you who don't live in Costa Rica or Florida, like I, that's kind of hard, but it is possible. And you could put that as a goal in your life. Ari didn't always live in Costa Rica. I didn't always live in, in Florida. I lived in Chicago, which you cannot get vitamin D exposure all your own. So I moved to Florida primarily for vitamin D at the time, but, but now it's a lot of other benefits, you know, it, mitochondrial melatonin, vitamin A conversion and uh, freedom, personal freedom.
you know, <laughs> compared to the, many of the blue states up north. I love I love how you shifted uh, between the you know biochemistry and, and also freedom. <laughs> yeah, it's an important thing in life. You know, you can have yeah. the best health. I mean, health is the best wealth, but you know, freedom goes up there pretty high too. It's hard to be happy when you're when you're living in a tyrannical society. Agreed. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons you're down in Costa Rica. Yes, indeed. Congratulations. That must have been a tough move. Uh, so you've been there a year and a half. How, how bad was it going down? Is it a lot of transitions or? Yeah, there were, there were a number. There's definitely some cultural stuff that you, that you have to adjust to. Um, I have little kids. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And there are certain things coming from the States that you, that you take for granted as far as how, you know, the, literal the, the physical infrastructure is built to keep kids safe to keep people in general safe but especially kids yeah. uh, sidewalks bike lanes yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. things like that um, parks to play in playgrounds you know um, here it's you really have to be vigilant about protecting your kids all the time because there's you know either you're walking in streets where you have crazy motorcycle drivers or you're on the you're you know, a very intense ocean with big waves and strong currents. And so there's a lot of vigilance that initially was very stressful for me to, to have to be so hyper vigilant, protecting my kids all the time. Now I've kind of dialed it in. I've adjusted to it and I have a new, new you're base. Getting, you're getting older and smarter too. So, you know, yeah, it's not a forever. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And it, it, I was going to comment earlier when you were talking about getting out early in the sunshine, the, the value and benefit of that Costa Rica is that pretty much sunrise, I think is about the same time within 10 or 15 minutes, the whole entire year. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's you know? close, maybe, maybe, maybe half an hour. Five, oh, it's a half hour. Okay. It's a yeah. half hour. Very, where I was up North, it could be an hour, two, three hours, you know? Right. It's, it's roughly five thirty AM to 6 PM okay. uh, is, is the, the hours of sunlight. Yeah. Almost year round. And so, the beautiful thing about that is that you can rely on it. It's consistent. You don't have to get your, your circadian biology screwed up by transitioning to daylight savings times and what a joke. And there yeah. is no daylight savings times in Costa Rica because there's no damn need for it. It's only a half hour difference the entire year. Tell me about it. I just missed a couple podcasts in the last week as the U.S. shifted their, their, oh, yeah. uh, their, their time zone. And I was on um, U.S. Central Standard Time and I didn't shift mine on my end. So then I had a couple of mishaps with missing podcasts because of it. You got, you got Yeah, that's a big thing. Usually the computers take care of that, but I suspect if you're in Costa Rica, they don't adjust for it because it's not an adjustable factor there. They don't shift. Well, I just, I had my settings set to us central standard time rather than Costa Rica because it was in that same time zone. And then okay. the U S shifted their time zones. And so mine, mine didn't shift. All right. Well, I'm sure it all worked out. <laughs> so uh, let's see, we, we talked about a lot. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad you're on board with iron, you know, it's just, because I don't think you talk about it in your book. And when I read your book, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I've been aware of iron for three decades, but I've somewhat become disenchanted with it. I didn't think it was as huge as it was because I thought I didn't realize how much of it is in their storage stored in the body tissues. I just thought it would be easy to get rid of, but it's hard. It's actually harder to get rid of iron than it is linoleic acid. Linoleic acid, you can really? pretty much lower your reserves if you're really, really good in about five to seven years. Iron could be 10 to 20, mm -hmm. 10 to 20 wow. years, because you can't, you can't lower it any faster than four, four pints a year. <laughs> yeah. you know. there, there's also an interaction with pathogens, isn't there? Like 
Oh, absolutely. Higher, yeah. higher iron levels leading to increased susceptibility to certain pathogens. Yeah, but the, the fascinating bit of epidemiology, if correlation is not causation, but you use the Brandon Hill criteria to prove it, is that the people who donate blood are a lot healthier and live a lot longer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like a big bonus you get. You're not only helping other people, but you help yourself. But I think it's better if you do it slower. That would be the thing. So it's good stuff. So um, anything else you'd like to comment and, and emphasize in Eat for Energy? You know, the, the, the basic gist of the book is it addresses sort of five fundamental nutritional causes of fatigue. Um, one chapter is on circadian rhythm and how to optimize that via nutrition. So it talks about time-restricted eating windows. It talks about uh, syncing that time-restricted eating window um, with the hours of daylight. It talks about meal consistency, and it talks about uh, calorie stacking, how stacking more of your daily calories towards the earlier part of the day rather than the later part of the day, which is what most people do, um, leads to increased energy levels and enhancing all of the different neurotransmitters and hormones that that are synced with the circadian rhythm. So uh, uh, let me, let me just stop, stop you there. Sure. Uh, do you want to comment on, uh, cause you, you've been a weight resistance trainer for a long time and I know your history, but I was impressed when I first saw you, um, the, you want to comment on the timing of the foods with respect to protein content and the separation to, because if you're going to increase your muscle mass, you're not going to do it with low protein diet. It ain't going to work that way. You are not going to build muscle mass guaranteed hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. So, well, that feeds into more chapter two and to some extent, chapter three on, on body composition, optimization and, and gut health and protein is huge. Um, we know as we, as we mentioned earlier, that sarcopenia, which is half of adults over the age of 50 and, uh, 20 to 35% of, of younger adults have sarcopenia, low muscle mass, uh, low protein consumption and lack of resistance training are the main factors in that. Um, and this is a major contributor to early death and to fatigue uh, and insulin resistance in poor metabolic health more broadly. So um, we know there's several meta-analysis. For example, uh, 2012, a, a researcher named Thomas Weikerly did a meta-analysis where they found that 1.1 gram to 1.6 grams per kilogram per day of protein increased fat loss, decreased muscle loss, decreased hunger, and improved resting metabolic rate compared to the group consuming lower protein. Um, there's other meta-analyses and studies that have found the same. For example, in the context of a weight loss diet, uh, we know that consuming 1.1 to 1.6 grams per kilograms per day of protein, the high, the high, that's the high protein group. They lost in, in the context of a calorie deficit, they lost 70% of their weight as fat, body fat, as compared to the low protein group, which lost only 50% of their weight as fat. So it's also preferentially while you're in a calorie deficit, allowing your body to hang on more to muscle mass so that you're selectively increasing fat loss. You don't want to lose weight, just weight. You want to lose it from fat, not lose muscle mass. So higher protein content does that. It also helps preserve resting metabolic rate and it increases satiety and decreases hunger, which is the, the basically the two let me put it this way. Losing fat is quite easy. Anybody can starve themselves and lose a huge amount of weight or fat in a pretty short period of time. 
the, the challenge with fat loss has always been sustaining it and adhering to the diet long-term such that you don't regain all the fat that you lost and higher protein consumption, um, is, is a major key to that by preserving lean body mass, preserving resting metabolic rate and increasing satiety. The two biggest factors that lead somebody not to adhere to their diet in the long term are hunger, hunger pangs. Chronic hunger is a bitch, to put it simply. And it's, it is brutal psychologically to put up with that in the long term. And the other thing is fatigue. So if you're chronically tired and you're chronically hungry, you are going to start eating stuff to try to deal with that. That's why people can't stick to their diet. So if you can if you can address those two things, uh, that's a major key. And protein consumption is a, is a huge factor. I, I have many people when they encounter these protein recommendations, they go and they, they start trying to implement them. They go, oh my God, I can't believe how little protein I was eating. And, yeah, yeah. And, and when they start eating this much protein, they go, oh, it's, it's so hard to eat enough. They actually find that they're losing weight and they're totally full to the point where they don't even they don't even have the desire to eat all the food on their plate. So that's, that's where you want to be. You want to have energy. You don't want to be in a state of hunger. And that's, those are the keys that are going to allow you to sustain it. One other thing uh, that I would say maybe similar to, um, to donating blood in terms of how little known it is, but one of the, the really huge, powerful factors is something called flux. And Flux is instead of calories in minus calories out, flux is plus calories in plus calories out. This is a seemingly minor thing, but it makes a big difference. So let me, let me give you a couple scenarios to explain why. Um, let's say you have a sedentary office worker who is trying to lose weight and they're in a calorie deficit of 500 calories a day because they're consuming a thousand calories each day and they're burning 1500 calories. Okay. So you have a calorie deficit of 500. And in another context, you have somebody who is an athlete and does a lot of physical activity and is burning 3000 calories a day and is consuming 2,500 calories a day. They have the exact same 500 calorie a day deficit. And by virtue of the math on paper, everything should play out the same. They should lose the same amount of weight, but they don't. And this is the big key. The, the, we know that high flux, which is more total volume of calories flowing in and out of the system. So if you want to think of this as an analogy, think of like a garden hose with a little drip of water flowing in and out of it versus a fire hose with a huge amount of water flowing in and out of it. In the high flux condition, where lots of energy is moving, they lose more body fat, they increase fat oxidation, they increase satiety and decrease hunger levels, they increase energy levels, and they preserve resting metabolic rate better. So they lead to more long-term adherence and sustaining the weight loss at a much higher rate than the low flux condition. So uh, th this is another major key to long-term sustainable fat loss, you have to raise your flux. You can't just eat less. You've got to, you've got to raise that flux. And the, the way to do that is not just to do huge amounts of intense physical activity. And it's certainly not to just start eating more. There's a specific way that I recommend doing this and this, and that is 
you got to increase protein intake first, and you need to increase your intake of non-fibrous vegetables. Just the, the volume of that allows you to um, consume more food overall. So by doing those two things, you're now consuming more food. You're flushing a lot more nutrients into your system. Uh, and you're doing it with nutrients that are unlikely to be stored as fat. And then in tandem with that, you increase your, your gentle movement, what's called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, your gentle movement throughout the day. So you want to be more active, um, whether that's uh, a standing desk, a walking treadmill desk, or whether it's you know just be doing more walking or biking, gentle movement throughout the day. Raise that that daily flux up so that you're consuming more calories and you have more calories flowing out of the system. From there, you create the, the energy deficit that allows you to drop the fat. And if you do that again with high protein consumption and resistance training, that's going to allow you to hang on to all your muscle mass and preserve your resting metabolic rate, increase satiety, decrease hunger, and drop selectively fat rather than weight more broadly, you know, losing lots of fat and losing lots of muscle. So that's, a, that's another major key to that. Um, the other chapters of the book, I talk a lot about blood sugar. This is a major factor for, uh, for many people, as far as their fatigue issues, primarily caused by excess body fat and insulin resistance. So again, kind of some of that comes back to body composition, but there's other strategies to also, uh, uh fix, both hyper and hypoglycemia uh, in a pretty quick way. Uh, many people don't know that diabetes, type 2 diabetes, full-blown type 2 diabetes can actually be reversed in a matter of weeks by it's simply cured. addressing the diet. Cured. Essentially cured. Yes. Yeah, Almost absolutely. all type 2 diabetes, type 2 diabetes can be cured. Not 100%, but close. Right. Yes. Yeah. If it's, if it's really severe and it's been there for a very long time, it's, it's hard to regenerate those beta cells in the pancreas, but uh, yeah, a lot of it can actually be cured in a matter of weeks. You can get people completely off of their diabetes medications. And, uh, and, and so they're no longer classified as diabetics based on blood sugar levels and hemoglobin H1, A1C um, purely in, you know, a couple months from changing their diet. Now it might be hard to adhere to that diet. It's a big change for many of those people, but it's possible to completely re reverse that disease state. Um, the omega-6s, linoleic acid are obviously playing a role here. The uh, circadian rhythm and time-restricted eating play a big role tying into insulin resistance. We know, for example, having a meal at 8 p.m. and about most Americans consume uh, around 50% of their calories at night. So we know that consuming a meal at 8 p.m. Um, compared to 8 a.m., the same exact meal will lead to a 29% increase in peak glucose response, 86% increase in total glucose response, and 66% more time spent in hyperglycemia, again, compared to that same exact meal consumed at 8 a.m. So there's a big difference in, you know, in our physiology as far as how it's processing nutrients depending on the time of the day. Um, and let's see what else. Um, and then we, there's another chapter on gut health and another one on brain health. And then there's a huge big section of the book on superfoods and supplements. It's basically got an encyclopedia of all the best supplements to, uh, optimize energy levels. All right. Well, it's a great book. Uh, and it's out May 10th. 
So uh, if you want to take advantage of it, you can get it on Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. A lot of people don't like Amazon. That's fine. I hope it does well. And I really thank you for the time. And uh, we'll look forward to connecting you with you for your next update book on the red light therapy. Wonderful. Thank you so much, my friend. It's, uh, it's always an honor and a privilege to connect with you.